Last week we finished chapter 7, which was Daniel's vision of the four beasts. We're going to go into Daniel 8 tonight, unless you want to. I don't plan to spend a lot of time in Daniel 8. It's essentially, from Daniel's perspective, a future history of Greece and Persia. And the only remarkable thing in there is the angel explaining the dream to him. I'd sort of like to get most of the way up through chapter 9 and then either get started on the 70 weeks or do the 70 weeks first time next time. Because quite frankly, most people come to study Daniel for the 70 weeks. Anyway, chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. So he's referring to his first dream. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw it was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was on the Ulai Canal. Okay, Daniel was stationed out of Babylon. And Babylon is down on the plain of Shinar, on the Euphrates River. Susa is up in the mountains to the east of Babylon. It's sort of like the difference between Phoenix and Flagstaff. When Babylon was the top country in the region, Susa was sort of their summer capital kind of a thing. It was since taken over by the Persians and became Shushan, which you, of course, should be familiar with in the book of Esther. So that's what we're talking about. So verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. We'll get the explanation of this in a minute. You've all been through this a number of times, so you, of course, know it's Medea, Persia, and Greece under Alexander. The image of the goat speeding across the land without touching the ground is a reference to the speed with which the Greeks under Alexander conquered both the Persians and went right on past all the way to India. Speaking of which, the Greeks and the Persians didn't like each other. There was a visceral animus between them. And it goes all the way back to when the Persians tried to conquer Greece. Remember the Battle of Thermopylae? After all of that, the Greeks had no use for the Persians, and it was sort of personal. So when Alexander goes the other way, it's angry, as opposed to, okay, we're going to conquer your land, but nothing personal, it's just business. This was more than just business, and hence, he struck him with wrath. So verse 7 again, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, 
But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And that's the division of the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander. And we'll talk about that more, especially when we get into chapter 10. Chapter 10 is sort of the soap opera. And what you have is blow-by-blow description of all the machinations between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, you know, who married who, who was ascendant when, yada, yada, yada. It's just like a soap opera, which is, of course, one of the reasons lots of scholars believe Daniel was written during the time of the Maccabees, because he describes the run-up to the time of the Maccabees precisely. And I think I said early on as we were studying this, Yeshua calls Daniel a prophet, so that's good enough for me. All the way down to verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, glorious land being Israel. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, there's a couple of interpretations of this. One is that it obviously is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who does in fact take over Jerusalem, does in fact desecrate the temple, and so forth. The way it's written, however, verse 11, it became as great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the palace of his sanctuary was overthrown. So the prince of the host, just doing grammar here, seems to be talking about the Messiah. So this could be one of those things where Antiochus did what he did, and, and certainly this matches what he did, but in no case did Antiochus actually challenge the Messiah. He took over the temple, he desecrated it, he put up an idol in there, he did all that, but he was never any threat to the Messiah. So, and not that the Antichrist is himself going to be a threat to the Messiah, but he is certainly going to be a ruler of a different quality than Antiochus was. Verse 12, and a host will be given over to it, together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another one, holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And again, this is talking about, I think, the restoration under the Maccabees. Back up to verse 12 now. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. So the question becomes, what transgression? What I think it means proximately is when the Greeks took over the Mediterranean basin, a whole lot of Jews became secularized. They were known as Hellenistic Jews, and they essentially had no use for 
the Torah. They had no use for the traditions of the ancestors. So perhaps the transgression here is those Hellenized Jews did in fact help Antiochus in his campaign to desecrate the temple and get rid of the Torah. So that may very well be the transgression that is being spoken of. In other words, the reason Antiochus was successful is because so many Jews agreed with him. That's a guess on my part. So now we're all the way down to verse 15 maybe. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So trying to understand the vision, and he sees a man. The man is getting instructions from somebody else. So the man who is identified as Gabriel is standing in front of Daniel. Gabriel then gets instructions from somebody who sounds like he's standing in the middle of the river. And his instructions are to make Daniel understand the vision. Now, Gabriel is one of two named archangels in Scripture. Three if you count Satan, Lucifer. The Jewish literature has got a whole bunch of other named archangels. I don't remember them all. But Raphael, Othniel, Metatron, there are a bunch of them in the Jewish literature. The only two that are in the canon of Scripture are Gabriel and Michael. And within Scripture, each of them seems to have a different mission. Michael's mission seems to be as a warrior on Israel's behalf. Gabriel's mission seems to be to bring messages concerning the Messiah. Now, the obvious question that then shows up, we know who Gabriel is, he's an archangel. And if we have any understanding of the pecking order in heaven, archangels are right up there, pretty high. So the question then is, who is authorized to give an archangel instructions? And the speculation in Christian circles is it's Yeshua, who is speaking to Gabriel, telling him it's okay to tell this guy what's going to happen. Verse 17, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Two things. Thing one is the signature behavior when one meets up with an archangel is just exactly what happens here. You lose your knees and go down. The vision is for the time of the end. Now, when we go back and interpret the vision in light of what happened under Antiochus, gives weight to the thought that you may have a dual fulfillment of the prophecy. You have approximate fulfillment, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, and then you have a distal fulfillment, which is the Antichrist. As I pointed out to you when we were reading it directly, some of the language there can be taken to be messianic. So verse 18, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. In other words, I fainted. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. 
As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. In other words, the four nations that succeed Alexander's empire are never going to be as militarily significant as the unified empire was under Alexander. And some of that, by the way, is simply competition among them. Alexander, when he was the sole leader and the top dog, could crack heads and make them all work together. Once each of them had his own separate kingdom, then getting them to work together becomes a problem. And in fact, the Solomays and the Seleucids never do work together for very long. They're pretty much always in competition. 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. I take this to be what we in Christianity call the Antichrist. He's going to be very powerful, but he will have the power of Satan behind him. It will not be his own power. And in that process, he will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints, which is to say he is going to be waging war against believers. Now, in Daniel's understanding, the saints are Israel, and that is a perfectly good interpretation. And in fact, it's been a while since I've looked at rapture theory. One of the ways this fits into rapture theory is the idea that the saints are the Jews, and that the church gets taken out of the way, and this Antichrist and the Jews then duke it out. I do not happen to be a believer in the traditional Christian understanding of the rapture, but you can see how somebody who does believe that would see that in this. I believe in this case that the saints are all believers, not just the Jews. 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The visions of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Antiochus, I believe, died by having his stomach rot. He was somewhere in Asia Minor, suddenly fell sick, and his stomach essentially rotted out from it. So he was taken out, not by a human hand, if you will. So this certainly works for Antiochus. The other thing is this seal up the vision, and it will be said again at the end of the book. I am of the opinion that Revelation is completely understandable. Daniel is not. Daniel is explicitly called a sealed book. So as we're going through this and trying to figure out what it means, I think it's very natural that we have all sorts of different interpretations and different scholars have different interpretations and so forth because it's sealed until the events take place. Revelation is explicitly not a sealed book. So Revelation is intended to be understood. Daniel is not. That's genealogy. Do with that whatever you like.
27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. All right, 70 years. There's two interpretations of the 70 years. Interpretation number one is that's how long you're going to be in exile. And that's a good interpretation because that's what God says. And remember in Jeremiah, it says, you guys didn't give the land its Sabbaths. In the Torah, it says every seventh year the land is supposed to rest. And what God says in Jeremiah is, you guys didn't do that. So you owe me 70 years of Sabbaths. Perfectly good interpretation. Daniel believes it. Jeremiah believes it. I believe it. But look at the dates of the Babylonian Empire. And if you can do head math, how long did the Babylonian Empire last? 70 years. The Babylonian Empire started in 609 BC with the defeat of the Assyrian Empire, and it was brought down by the Medes and the Persians in 539 BC. That's exactly 70 years. So what I get from that is God whistled up the Babylonian Empire, raised them up to the dominant empire in the Mediterranean region, used them to take out Jerusalem, and then shut them down because they were done. I think it's a very powerful testimony to the fact that God is the one who manages the empires of the earth. So now we're all the way down to verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel has read the books. Daniel believes the books. Daniel is expecting that the time of the Babylonian captivity is at an end. Daniel, however, gets on his face before God and pleads with God to end the captivity. And what that teaches me is that the prophecies of God are now self-enforcing. God says, okay, I've decreed 70 years for you guys, and then goes silent. And it's up to a man then to say, uh, okay, God, it's been 70 years. I'm coming to you now for mercy because your word said 70 years, 70 years is up, and so now it's the time for your mercy, and I'm asking for that mercy. So it is really important for the people of God to pray, especially in the face of prophecy. God heard the cries of the people in Egypt, their prayers, and that's what caused him to act. And the other part of praying in the face of prophecy is when you pray, things that are decreed can either be postponed or aborted. So if there is something that is coming down that is not good, it is entirely possible that if God's people get down on their faces and repent and pray, those judgments can be either turned aside or delayed. Nineveh is the poster child for that because Jonah went through and said, 40 days, 
and you're toast. And all of Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes and fasting. And God changed his mind. And furthermore, he gave them another chance a hundred years later when he sent Nahum. Second time they didn't listen to the prophet, so the judgment happened. Four maybe. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So what he's saying here is I have got no standing to come before you except your word. I'm not bringing anything to the party. I am simply coming as a humbled individual and representative of my nation, and I am coming before you and reminding you of your word, which I can't make you enforce. So it's entirely a plea for mercy. Verse 6, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven us, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. I mean, that's a pretty comprehensive list. You don't owe me anything, God. I am not coming here making demands as if you owe me something. The only thing I'm counting on here is mercy. I'm not counting on anything else. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. What he's saying is, we got nothing, you got everything. And what we're looking for here is mercy and forgiveness. We are not looking for our wages. We haven't done anything wonderful here that you owe us anything for. We got nothing. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And what he's talking about here is there's two rebukes in the Torah. There's one in Leviticus and there's one in Deuteronomy. The one in Leviticus promises restoration. The one in Deuteronomy does not. The rabbis say that they used up the one in Leviticus right here. They say that the rebuke in Leviticus applies to the Babylonian exile. The rebuke in Deuteronomy applies to the exile they're currently in. Verse 12, maybe. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. So what he's saying is, God, you told us back in the Torah, if we didn't do this, this is what's going to happen. You have been faithful to your word. You are doing no more than what you said you would do. Which, by the way, then gives us hope for mercy. Because he also promises mercy and restoration in the same place. Twelve again. 
He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Okay, that's an important phrase. Because what the Leviticus passage says is, as you stray from me, I am going to start chastising you. And if you don't pay attention, I'm going to chastise you more. And the purpose of the chastisements is to get your attention and to get you to turn around and come back. So the escalating chastisement is a response to Israel's continual refusal to learn. And that's what Daniel is talking about here, is you chastise us and we didn't learn. We didn't pay attention. And so what the Leviticus passage says, I'll chastise you, you don't get that, I'll chastise you seven times more. If you don't get that, I'll chastise you seven times more. And the whole idea is to get you to turn and repent. And what Daniel is saying is, you told us what you were doing. You told us what the process was, and we didn't pay any attention to you. So what you're doing to us is nothing more than the outworking of what you said you were going to do. By the way, at the last of verse 13, Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. So the whole purpose of the chastisements in Leviticus is to teach. They are measure for measure. And as you stray away from God, the punishments are measure for measure, and the idea is there to teach you and return you. And what Daniel is saying is we didn't gain any insight from that. You had to send us into exile. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as on this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And that's what God said will happen, is you will become a byword. Now on verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So again, he's doing the old Moses trick. Remember when, when God is about to destroy his people, Moses says, uh, God, think about your reputation. Think about what the nations will say. Think about, this is straight out of Moses. Of course, Daniel's read Moses, obviously. And notice again, he says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. So being in sackcloth and ashes and humbling yourself before God is not asserting your righteousness. Verse 19, 
O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So again, he's appealing to God's sense of his own reputation and purposes. God, if you allow your reputation to be sullied, if you go beyond the letter of what you said you are going to do, then people will say of you, you are no different than any pagan god who is capricious. And so what we're doing is we're depending on your word and you doing what your word says you'll do. You said it was going to be 70 years. It's been 70 years. So now, God, we come before you in humility and we ask you to remember your promise, remember your righteousness, remember your sanctuary, and remember your people. It's a great prayer. It's one of the great prayers in the Bible. But again, the lesson I think you should take away from this is all sorts of stuff is written in the Bible. As you all know, I am not a Calvinist. And I firmly believe that even in the face of hairy Babylonians at the wall, prayer and repentance can be effective. You're asking for him to act according to his word. You're acting for him to act according to his mercy. I firmly believe that the merciful thing for him to have done to Jerusalem was to send them into exile. Because in exile, in Babylon, the thing that got wrung out of them was idol worship. They got sent into exile because of idol worship, so he sent them to Idol Central, which is Babylon. And in Babylon, they got idol worship wrung out of them, and it ceased to be a problem. They are in the current exile because of baseless hatred. They couldn't get along. Too many scorpions in one bottle. And so he says, all right, you guys can't get along. You guys don't love your neighbor. You guys hate each other for no reason. I'll show you real hatred. And we have the Holocaust, and we have the Spanish Inquisition, all of that that has happened in the 2,000 years that they've been in exile. They have been getting ample lessons in baseless hatred. But I firmly believe that he does that in his mercy. When we get to the point where we are so self-destructive that we can no longer govern ourselves, God finally says, all right, out of the pool, you've got something to learn, and you can't be self-sufficient for a while until you learn it. In the case of Jerusalem, before the Babylonians took it down, I don't know that a prayer for mercy would have been effective because the merciful thing under those circumstances was to send them into exile. You certainly had righteous people within Jerusalem. Daniel was a righteous man. And Daniel grew up in Babylon. Daniel went to Babylon with everybody else, and he was righteous. And certainly there were righteous people during the siege of Jerusalem who were praying for God's mercy. And I am of the opinion that the merciful thing to do in that case was to send them into exile. So their prayer was answered, just not the way they hoped it would be. Obviously, we don't have time to do the 70 weeks the remainder of the hour. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.